Philippians chapter 3. Message is entitled, The Power of the Resurrection. Chapter 3, the first eight verses, Paul just kind of share, briefly shares his testimony, the way he grew up, very religious. Verse 7, he says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. And may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Father, I pray now, Lord, that I might be spirit-filled. Lord, that you might energize me, strengthen me, that the message might be yours. Lord, you know the hearts that are here. You know the needs. And Lord, I pray use the word in our hearts. And Lord, that every one of us being spirit-filled listeners will not be forgetful hearers of the word, but Lord, be obedient. Lord, and we'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul loved these people at Philippi. He was writing to somebody he didn't know. And to put it in context, if you look in Acts chapter 16, you don't have to turn there. You can look later. This is a place that Paul went. This is the place that Paul was endeavoring to, on his missionary journey to go north and then speak in Asia. And the Lord forbid him. And he went to bed that night, and God gave him a vision. In the vision, he said, he saw a man. And the man said, Paul, come over to Macedonia and help us. And immediately the next day, they endeavored to go. So they crossed that little sea. And the first place they came to to preach was Philippi. Now, Paul's strategy was always to go to a synagogue first. But there weren't enough Jewish people there. He wanted to start with those that may want to hear the message. And you know the pattern. He'd go to the synagogue. He'd preach. Some people get saved and they kick him out. Usually end up in jail. He'd get out and go to the next town. Well, now he shows up and there wasn't even a, enough men there to make a synagogue. So there was a place of prayer where the women would go pray, the Jewish women down by the river. And there was a woman there named Lydia. She was a, she was a businesswoman. She sold purple dyes and, and claws that were dyed purple and she's the first convert there in Macedonia she came to know Christ so every day on their way to go minister they begin to meet the people and there showed up this demon possessed girl and this demon possessed girl you think she's doing good advertising because she say you just need to listen to these men these are men of God and you know you see the humanness in Paul too because it says one day, Paul was just greatly annoyed with this. And he turned around, he cast a demon out of that young woman. Well, the people she was working for, because she was a slave girl, were making a lot of money with her telling fortunes. And all of a sudden, they didn't have a demon. They couldn't tell fortune. They were out of business. And they got kind of upset, ruining their business. And so they stirred up a riot. And whenever there's a trouble, whoever gets blamed, the Romans throw them in jail. So they threw Paul in jail. And they beat him, Silas, and they put him in stocks. And at midnight, Paul and Silas had a worship service. And they began to sing and praise the Lord that he counted them worthy to suffer for his name's sake. And God loves that kind of worship so much, he shook the place. There was an earthquake, and supernaturally, God caused all the chains to fall off, the stocks to fall apart, and the doors of the prison swung open. Now, normally being a jailer was a job for a retired soldier who would work faithfully for the Roman government, and it's kind of a nice cushy job. You just make sure everybody else does their job. The problem is, though, if you're in charge of a Roman jail, people don't escape. If they escape, you get to take the punishment they had. So if there's any criminals there that were guilty of death, he was going to be punished. And normal punishment was... They beat, beat you with rods and make sure you felt it good. Then they cut your head off. 
And so this jailer, having heard the gospel, having seen the supernatural worship of these men who were beat. Now, Paul didn't like to be beat any more than anybody else did. And that shows you grace. Grace is not just a word. So many times we look at the Bible and we as believers get so used to God's blessing, we begin to take it for granted and it becomes words on a page. Grace is real. Grace is the Holy Spirit taking the dials of your heart and turning it to joy even in the midst of trial. And they weren't singing because they were so tough. They were singing because God filled their heart to overflowing with joy. And this jailer was ready to kill himself. And Paul knew what Romans do because he was a Roman citizen. So he said, hey, don't hurt yourself. We're all here. This fellow came running in. And he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? God had been working in his heart. The Bible says that Paul told him, you just believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He heard the message. It's time for you to make a decision. He made that decision, and now as a new man, he took these prisoners home, and he washed their wounds and dressed their wounds, and he fed them. They shared the gospel with his family, and they also came to Christ. Now, some like to point this, well, see, you know, the whole household got saved. That way, the babies got baptized too. Well, he's a retired guy. I doubt he has babies living in his house, but whatever. It doesn't say that, so we don't know. But his whole house came to Christ. Now, when Paul thought back on his time at Philippi, he could have thought, man, I don't want to go back there again. I mean, you go there, you get thrown in prison, and you get beat up. But that's not what Paul remembered. You see, when you walk through trials with the Lord Jesus, what you remember is the joy, because that's grace. And so Paul writes to these people, just to put it in context, in chapter 1. And he says, you know, every time I think of you, my heart overflows and I pray for you. Because you've been a part of the gospel going forth from the first time till now. He's writing to people he has personal relationship with. And his desire is they get strong. Not just when he's around. But that their faith is based in the word of God and in God's promises. So that when the trials come, they don't waver. Paul wrote the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 4. He said, He wanted his desire, the same as it is for the Philippians, that they grow up to the measure of the stature of Christ, not blown to and fro by every wind of doctrine, but strong, rooted deep in the love of Christ. So he writes to these people in Philippi, and he says, my desire is that you go strong. And I want you to know, you're concerned about him because he was in prison again for preaching the gospel. But I want you to know that God's going to use these circumstances. He's already used them out to the furtherance of the gospel so you can rejoice. He comes down to verse 21 of chapter 1 and he says, listen, you need to know something. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You've heard that before. What does that mean? Paul said, listen, you don't have to worry about me. My whole life is about Christ. And And if that causes my death, that's even better. We need to remember that sometimes in a trial. The worst thing that can happen to you as a believer is not death. We act like physical death is the biggest problem. No, it's not. The biggest problem is spiritual death. Dr. Booker reminded us of that on Thursday night. He said, what did it take for God to overcome physical death? He walked up to the tomb, said, Lazarus, come forth. Boom, here comes Lazarus. That wasn't a big deal for God. Physical death is not a big deal. It ought not to be a big deal for us as believers. But what did it take for God to overcome spiritual death? It took the cross. It took the Father pouring out His wrath on His only begotten Son for all the sins of the world for all time. And Jesus hung there, and the thing that He was terrified about in the garden when He said, Father, if it be Thy will, let this cup pass from me. It wasn't the nails, it wasn't the beatings he took. It was the fact that he knew he was going to be separated from his father by our sin. God demonstrated that physically when Jesus hung on the cross. In the sixth hour, it all went dark. There was a shadow cast upon all the earth. And Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
because of our sin. And Paul said he was so taken with Jesus' love and his sacrifice that his whole life had to do with serving the Lord. It wasn't the flavor. It wasn't, you know, going to a Bible study, going to church. It was his whole life. So that he could write in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 10, 15, whether you eat therefore or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And he wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. He said, I beseech you therefore, brother, by, because of God's great mercy, that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy Acceptable unto God, this is your spiritual service of worship, your whole life. Paul was living that. And he said, when he finally got to the attitude, he didn't have to be afraid about death. His whole focus was, what does God want me to do? Not what's it, what is it going to cost, or what's that going to make me feel like, or what's going to happen? It was obedience to Christ. He was the slave of Jesus Christ. He calls himself that many times. He got to the place, he got so close to the Lord that he said it caused a turmoil in his heart. He said, I know that I want to be left here so I can minister to you because I want you to be strong. I want to give you all that God wants you to have so you're strong. But he said, you know what? To go be with the Lord, that's even better. Listen, we as believers, when we grow in Christ and we have that real relationship, that power of the Holy Spirit, that power of the resurrection evident in our lives, we don't have to be afraid anymore. We don't have to be afraid if the politicians change and And the world comes apart because our God still sits on the throne. He said, well, how do we do that? Chapter 2, he said, well, you need to have Christ's mindset. Chapter 2, he said, Jesus is God. He was the son of God. And even though he was God, he did not see his God as something he had to hold on to or grasp after. But he emptied himself. He took upon him flesh for all eternity. Do you know that? He's God. He's also 100% man. He didn't become any less God, but he became 100% man for all eternity. He had to become man so he could be our Savior on the cross. Had to be a sacrifice that God would accept. He said, all you have to do is let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Put others above yourself. And he has a couple of examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus who have just ministered their life almost away. But he comes to chapter 3 because he wants us to understand it's not about you being tougher, stronger mentally. It's not about putting a bunch of rules in your life and living really closely by the rules. Most all of religion outside of biblical Christianity is based upon a person keeping rules and suffering for whoever invented the religion. But that's not, that's not the message of Jesus Christ. There are some religions, the only guarantee of getting into heaven is you shed your blood. But in biblical Christianity, the message is Jesus shed his blood for us. He gave his life, and the Bible says, we are not redeemed, 1 Peter chapter 1, with corruptible things like silver and gold, but with precious blood, the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The sacrifice of Christ is so powerful. It's sufficient to pay for all the sins of all the sinners and all the sins that have ever been committed in all of time. But it is only proficient in those that receive that sacrifice. That's why Jesus said, in John 1.12, as many as received him, to them gave you the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe in his name. You have to make a decision about it. But he comes to chapter 3, and he begins, he said, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things again. is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Because it's easy for even us as believers who have trusted Christ to slide over into legalism. And begin to think, well, it's the things that we do. In fact, we get so anxious about other people going to heaven, we try to lead them in a prayer and then start hanging fruit on them. Well, you need to do this. You need to do that. And it's not in their heart. It's not in their desire. But we just want to feel better about ourselves. And so we won't wait for the Holy Spirit to do the work. We try to help the Holy Spirit out. Here, say these words. Say this prayer. And that's not life. 
There's no power in that. Paul says, listen, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. What do they bring? They bring rules and regulation. Well, you've heard about Jesus, but listen, if you really, then you've got to add to it. Well, here, you just, Jesus did all he, all he could do, now you do all you can do. And he'll make up the rest. That's legalism. It comes in so many forms. You see, you need to beware of that. You see, there are people, even in Christianity, who are naturally very self-disciplined. You know, they're the kid that he just did his homework when he was supposed to. His mom and dad weren't, hey, get in there and do your homework. You're in a flunk. He just got up and went and did his homework. And there are people like that in the church that even as Christians, they say, we need to be like that. And so they try to pass on somehow their discipline. But it's not a discipline of grace. It's of rules and regulation. And Paul said, I hate that stuff because it's a stumbling block for people. It causes people to be so discouraged. And it's opposite of grace. He goes on to say, listen, we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. I don't know how many young men I've seen come to Christ and then they think they can go out and test and see if their flesh got stronger. And so they go back to their old lifestyle. Just try it out. See how strong it is. And they fall flat on their face. And they come back and say, man, I can't believe I still fail. (laughs) Yeah, well, the old gospel song says, the arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. You still have the flesh as a believer, but you can't please God in the flesh. Paul wrote to the Galatians, he said, listen, that's, that's, that's like drug addiction. It's like witchcraft to think that somehow you could begin in the spirit and then please God by works in the flesh. He said, listen, we put no confidence in the flesh, but I could have put confidence in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. I was born into the right family. He said, I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. All that growing up, all that time where he, he learned the word of God, But it was about his own self-works and getting ahead. He had to put it all in the category of loss. My little pet peeve, but every time I go to a Southern Baptist meeting, I hear somebody talk about Baptist laugh. I guess it's spelled B-A-B-D-I-S-L-A-I-F. Baptist laugh. I don't know what that is because I didn't grow up a Southern Baptist. But here's what I hear them say. Well, bless God. I'm so thankful in his sovereignty I was born a Southern Baptist. It's like, that's not true. According to your 18-whatever doctrine, it says you have to be born again to be baptized to become a Southern Baptist. But they talk about Baptist life. Like somehow, well, if you weren't born into a Southern Baptist church and grow up in the nursery, well, you can go to heaven, but you're really not going to be a part of the crowd around here. Have you ever felt that way in the church? Same thing can happen. I could get up and say, you know what, I'm a fifth-generation pastor. But there are no second generations with God. Every generation needs to make a decision for themselves about Jesus Christ. And I don't care if you grow up in Sunday school, you're still a lost sinner that needs the miracle of the resurrection to take place in your life. And I'm thankful for parents that love the Lord and gave that example. But there came a time in my life that I had to make a decision personally about Jesus Christ. So all that other stuff, Paul said, I have to take that and put it in the lost column. It doesn't count. There's no one-up with some people that grow up in Sunday school. No, no, we're all lost. And the problem is there's a lot of people that are holding on to that. Well, my grandpa and grandma went to church. I've been in the church a long time. Like somehow that's saving you. And yet... You look in your own life. You allow the Holy Spirit to examine. There's no desire for the Lord. It's just something you do. It's habit. I think it's a good thing. Show up to church, especially on Easter. You know, go to church. God likes that. And then you can keep getting the things you get, you know, because it's a good thing to go to church. And yet there's no personal relationship. See, Paul was running the other way. He was persecuting the church. He was, he was there as the authority when Stephen got killed. 
And I think Stephen, if you, you listen, Stephen would have apologetic time with these lost Jewish people. And he was sharing Christ, and nobody could overcome his arguments, and they hated him for it. One day he was preaching, and Paul said, that's enough. We're killing this guy. And they stoned Stephen to death. But, but while he was preaching, the seed of the gospel was sown in Paul's heart, and he never got over it. How do you know that? Because when Jesus met him on the road, he said to him, hey, Paul, kind of hard for you to kick against the goads, isn't it? You know what those goads were? It was the seeds of the gospel that had fallen down into Paul's heart. And he was wrestling with it. He hated these Christians so much. And yet, the seeds of the gospel were beginning to grow. He said, that's all loss. Moreover, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and just counted as rubbish. I don't know if you've heard of anybody testimonies. Well, I've given up for this for Christ and that for Christ and the other for Christ. And, and there's almost like, oh, it's too bad. I had to give it up for Jesus. Paul didn't have that attitude. That's garbage. That's not even garage sale stuff. Get it out of here. Compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He knew him personally. So a lot of people know about Jesus, they know facts, they've watched all the shows on TV about Jesus, you know all these facts, but they don't know Jesus. Pretty obvious. There was a story about the resurrection of Jesus, the lost 40 days yesterday on the History Channel, so I was watching it while I was studying. And there were people on there who were born again, and there's people that weren't born again. And the difference is night and day, isn't it? It's night and day. Because these people, they're skeptical, whatever. And the other people, well, yeah, this happened. We don't know this, but I know Jesus rose from the dead. And there's just a quiet confidence and a peace about it. Paul said, compared all the religion of the world, all the good things I can do, is nothing compared to the personal knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ. That's not knowing facts. That's knowing him. You've heard those illustrations before. There are famous athletes, and you can know all about their, their resume, about their stats, how many games they won, how much money they make, what kind of house they live in. But if you showed up at the door, they wouldn't know you. See, that's the problem. There are a lot of people that show up to church that are learning facts about Jesus, but one day you're going to stand before him, and he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. You may have known about me, but I didn't know you as part of my family. That's the saddest words a human being can hear. So Paul goes on to say, I want to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from faith, comes from God on the basis of faith, so that I may know him, to know him. In knowing Christ, he goes on to talk about the power of the resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed unto his death, that he might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. That's all knowing Christ. It has to do with relationship. So he starts to know the power of the resurrection. Now, what power took place when Jesus rose from the dead? Tremendous power. In Romans chapter 28, verse 2, the Bible says, there, behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And the guard shook for fear of him and became like dead men. We know that many times the father, and a couple times that the father would speak to Jesus, there'd be a rumbling. And when Jesus died on the cross, there was an earthquake violent enough that rocks split apart. But when he rose from the dead, it says here in Matthew, there was a violent earthquake. But that's not what scared these fellas. It's when God's representative showed up. And his face was like lightning, and he was reflecting the glory and the holiness of God. You may be here this morning, so I'm not afraid of dying. I don't know the Lord, but I'll take my chances. You think you're not afraid. The problem is you don't understand something. There's a trigger fear. There's a trigger of fear in every human being. And God knows just how to flip it when he wants to. And the Bible says in Philippians 2 that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord. So at some point you're going to admit it. The trouble is it may be too late. These men were hardened warriors. And they're used to dealing with riots and putting down sedition. And when just the representative, not even God showed up, they fainted like dead men. And the angel came and rolled the stone away, not so Jesus could get out, but so we could see that the tomb was empty. It was a powerful time. There was a shot of energy from God that caused that, that earthquake that brought life back into the body of Jesus. It was like when God called into being light. In Genesis chapter 1, the Son of God said, let there be light, and there was an explosion of light. He created light before he even created the light bearers. We know that Jesus Christ is the creator. He's the Son of God, the one that created the earth because of what the Bible says. The Bible says in John 1, he was in the world, and the world was made by him. And there was not anything made that was not made by him. Hebrews chapter 11 says, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, that the Son of God spoke them into existence. All of the intricate systems that keep us alive, all the patterns of space. The Bible says this is awesome. One time we were having a, a series, and my son David was, was teaching, and he used Louis Giglio's How Great Is Our God series. And remind us from the Psalms, the greatest stars that are just, they just dwarf our whole system, these huge stars. The Bible says, almost like a side note, God breathed them out. And that God is the one that came back from the dead. So when we talk about the power of the resurrection, there's, there's something there more than just Jesus came back from the dead. Because the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, that when he conquered death, he led captivity captive and he gave gifts unto men. What are those gifts that he gave us in the resurrection? He gave us freedom from our sin. Our sins were paid for. He gave us eternal life. He gave us spiritual giftedness and purpose so that we can be about what he's doing. He gave us understanding through the Holy Spirit of the word of God so you can read this and it's food indeed and it's strength. He gave you an everlasting home in heaven. The Bible says in John 14, right now, he's there preparing that place for you. And one day, he's going to come again and receive you unto himself that where he is, you can be with him also. It's an amazing thing that we just don't know about God. And this is the thing I think we have a hard time with as, as individuals, as humans, that God cares enough that he cares about you. This week, one of my buddies was going through a, a trial, and so our small group showed up. Hey, guys, I need you to pray with me. Boom, there we are. We're there. We're excited about that because God has answers. He shared what his trouble was, and I said, you know, this reminds me of a passage of Scripture. In Psalm 139, the Bible says that God knows all of our days before we even live one of them out. You say, well, that's, that's good. I mean, that doesn't really give me a lot of comfort. I don't know how many days I have, but he does. But the next verse says, how many are his thoughts towards me? If I would count those precious thoughts, they're more than the sands of the sea. How great is our God? He doesn't just come generically to provide himself as a sacrifice. Do you know that Jesus died on the cross? So personal is that offering that if you were the only one that would received him, he would have died just for you. And his thoughts towards you are more than the sands of the sea. He doesn't just know about your circumstances. He cares about your circumstances. He loves us so much. Those are the gifts that he gives us in that great powerful resurrection. You see, when he died, he paid the price of our sin. But he, when he rose and he was declared to be the son of God with power, says in Romans 1, by his resurrection from the dead. So when he rises, he gives us that power to be able to live our lives for God. Otherwise, it's still just stuff on the page. And 50 days after Jesus gave his life on the cross, 
Pentecost came, the Holy Spirit came, and people began to live by the power of the resurrection. And it was totally different. So Paul says, I want to know God. I want to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Now, I was reading some uh, uh, commentaries as I'm studying, and most of them talk about Jesus is with us in fellowship when we suffer. But that's not what it says here. It says the fellowship of his sufferings. Now, the Bible says in Colossians 1.24, Paul said, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What does he mean? All the suffering for our sin, for our salvation, was completed at the cross. Jesus said, it is finished before he died. He completed that work on the cross. But the work of the gospel goes on. And Jesus said, they hated me, they're going to hate you. The fellowship of his sufferings are the fellowship of the gospel ministry. It's the fellowship of kingdom building. And he has not only saved us as his children, but he's given this opportunity to be a part of what he's doing in the world. And when you're doing what he wants you to do in the world, guess what? There's going to be opposition. Satan hates it. Satan hates everything God has created he even hates you, even if you don't belong to Jesus this morning. He hates you because God created you. That's why he's trying to destroy families. He just tries to destroy nations. Anything God has brought together, he tries to destroy. He hates believers. It doesn't make any sense to us. Sometimes you wonder all the hate that comes out of people that don't know the Lord. They're trying to blow everybody up. And maybe it's just a politician or, or some television commentator and they talk about Christians like they just wish they could get rid of all of them. Where does that come from? It doesn't originate with them. Jesus said, Satan is a liar and a murderer from the very beginning. And the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 that they, you're either a servant of Satan or you're a servant of God. You're either a slave of Satan or you're a slave of Jesus Christ. There's no in-between. And it says, the children of disobedience. We were all children of disobedience before God quickened us and we saw the light and came to Jesus Christ. So it's not a mystery. And if you're going to stand for the Lord, you're going to suffer. But here's the deal. This is part of the DNA. When you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, just like your physical children, you know, they're born, you see them on Facebook, and right away you go, oh, they look like their dad. I hope they're not as mean as their mom, right? Because they know there's a DNA mix in there. And when they grow up, they start sounding like mom or dad or looking, and they go, oh. And God gave them those parents on purpose because they're going to know all those ornery traits that the dad has. So the mom's got to work those out of the, that kid, you know, or vice versa. Well, when you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, the DNA you got was eternal life that has to do with the power of the resurrection. And Paul's just going to delineate a little bit of that in this passage. And one of the great privileges that he calls you into when you know Jesus Christ is your desire to make Christ known. Your desire to plant your flag and share Jesus Christ. In 1 John, you have a whole epistle just on the marks of the believer. Not things you do to get saved, but things that are going to be in your life if you belong to Christ. Kind of like your DNA. And one of those things is the desire to share Christ. John starts out and he says, those things we've heard and touched and seeing we've handled of the word of life, we want to tell you about that. It's just what happens. You want to share Christ. This last week in our men's ministry feast, Grant Olson was sharing that he grew up religious but lost. And he saw this fellow on the football team that was just an animal in all the wrong ways. Just a violent, mean, nasty linebacker. And then he came to Christ. And all of a sudden, this same guy is going around caring about people and sharing the Bible with them, reading his Bible all the time. And Grant said, i got to find out what happened to that guy. That's different. That is the DNA of the resurrection in his life. In John chapter 6, Jesus had fed the 5,000. And because getting a free meal was such a big deal, they all kind of followed him around the lake and showed up again. And Jesus said, you know, it's a sad deal. 
you didn't even come because of a miracle. You just came to get a meal. And they said, well, you know, in the Old Testament, Moses gave our fathers the bread of heaven. He said, no, he didn't. He gave them manna. You know what manna means? What is it? There's all that was it. What is it all over the ground? They had to pick up the what is it and eat it every day. God provided what is it for them to eat. That's what manna means. And they ate the manna that God provided supernaturally, and they still died. But whoever drinks of my blood and eats my flesh will live forever. And they, whoa, what? He wasn't talking about communion. He was talking about becoming a partaker in his life. I don't care what church you go to, if they're giving you bread and wine or grape juice and, and bread, it's, that's all it is. You don't get salvation by eating something. You only get salvation by partaking of the life of Jesus Christ. And when you partake of his life, you get all of his DNA. That's where that hope comes from. That's where that new want to comes from. It's the power of the resurrection. And it's your great desire to please him and what he says. He's listed you to be a soldier of the cross. First Timothy or 2 Timothy chapter 2. And now it's just in your desire... 2 Corinthians 5, whether you're alive here or you're alive in heaven, your desire is to be pleasing to him. What pleases him is, let's become a part of what's going on. I love getting together with our elder board. And we don't get together that much once a month because every one of them are busy serving the Lord. And they're all pastors, every one of them. But you know, when we get together, we don't talk about... Sometimes the end will say, hey, Don, how are we doing financially? But that's not what we talk about. We talk about is kingdom. We talk about gospel opportunities. Has God given an assignment for this? Has God given an assignment for that? Can we plant a church over there? How can we help David over in Germany? How can we help Jeff up in Jackson Hole? How can we help Josh and Candace? How can we help our college ministries? What do we need to be doing? What do we need to be praying about? God, God puts an energy in his children to be about what he's about. It's not something you do against your credit. It's just part of your life. It's part of that resurrection power. It's part of that new want to that he's put in there. And so the suffering that comes along with it is like, oh, well. It's like you, there, there's a lot of guys that play football that aren't football players. You know when you see them. They come home the first day and they're whining to their mommy about, oh, mommy, it hurts really bad. He might be playing football, but he's not a football player. Football players come out, they got cleat marks. They got, look at that, man. Yeah. Look at this egg I got on my shin, man. That guy kicked me right dead in the shin. I didn't know. And there's a fellowship about it. You know, you get the old football players together, walking in there. Yeah. That old knee injury showing up again. I'm going to have to get a new hip, man. Remember that guy hit me? Oh, man. Remember that story? But you know, there are, there are fellas that sat at the bench when their team won championships, and they still get to say, I was on the team. But it's not the same thing as being in the game, is it? And Jesus has gifted every one of us to be a part of the battle. I've told you before, one of my favorite verses is there in Matthew 11, verse 12, when, when Jesus is talking to the, 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 the friends of John that come and say, are we looking for somebody else? Or are you the one? And he says, hey, you go tell John, I'm the one. The lamer heal, the blind see. You go tell John. Then he turns to the crowd that would mock. He said, what'd you come out to see? Somebody dressed in soft clothing? He said, there's, no, there's been no man born greater than John the Baptist. And then he says, and from the time of John the Baptist till now, the kingdom of God suffers violence. And then he says this, the violent take it by force. What does that mean? means that those that have been energized by the power of the Holy Spirit that have resurrection power in their life because they've received Jesus Christ, there's an energy about them, the desire to make Christ known wherever he calls them to go, whatever sacrifice he calls them to make because they love Jesus so much, they just want to make him known. And the privilege of being able to share the gospel and wherever God calls you to be part of building the kingdom, that's the most exciting thing in your life. So if it causes suffering, that's fine. My fellowship is the fellowship, the fraternity of those that belong to Jesus and are a part of kingdom building. And then he says, being conformed even unto his 
even unto his death. You know what that is? That's the fellowship of courage. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Jesus has been there already. He's pulled the stinger out. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he said, I want you to have some courage. He wrote those people looking at, at persecution. They might be worried about it. So I, want you to tell, I want to tell you something. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 through 58. Paul says, I show you a mystery. We're not all going to die, but we're all going to be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, if at the last trumpet, for the dead in Christ will rise first, then we that are alive and remain will be caught up together to be with the Lord in the air, and so will we ever be with the Lord. You see, for the believer, death really isn't a different experience than rapture because it happens so quickly. You fall asleep here on earth. Death doesn't hurt. You know that? God's pulled this thing out. Dying hurts, but that's because you got life still. Death doesn't hurt. And he said, listen, God's already gone there before you. You don't have to be afraid. The worst thing to happen to believer is unfaithfulness, not death. Jesus already figured out the death part. And you close your eyes in death here, you wake up in heaven. Bang, like that. Just like one day. The rapture is going to come. Charles Swindoll, a great pastor, said he had a godly old grandpa that was a judge. And he used to love hanging out with his grandpa, the judge. And one day, the judge took him fishing. And they're out there fishing on the Texas lake. And the judge says to Charles, little Charles Swindoll, he said, you know, Charles, I want to I wanna, I wanna die because I want to experience the whole thing just like Jesus did. See, we don't have to be afraid anymore. And that's the part of the DNA that you can have confidence that you're going to be with the Lord. You don't have to worry. I've heard some people say, well, are you going to heaven? And they say, well, I, yeah, nobody can know. I said, whoa, you're in the wrong place, pal. Jesus wants his people to know. He wrote that whole chapter about the security of the believer in Romans chapter 8. Paul said, I am convinced that neither life, nor death, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor any created being shall be able to separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. You see, salvation, resurrection power is permanent. Jesus didn't die again. He dies no more. And he gave you that life. It's permanent. It's forever. Eternal. But it wasn't just the dying... It was the attitude about dying. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says this, and it's kind of a strange passage. It's always caring about the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus might be seen. What does that mean? In short, our confidence in our eternal life is so powerful, we don't have to care about death. We can be the most courageous people in the face of death because he's given us life. And yet Jesus was submissive. He didn't have to worry. He didn't have to defend himself. Just serve. Verse 11. It says in the King James, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection. You say, well, I mean, Paul's kind of worried about this, right? He's, he's, he wants to get this, this, and this so that he can actually go to heaven. No. Paul had such a humble view of himself. When you read his testimony other places, he said, I'm the least of all saints. I deserve Jesus Christ less than anybody does because I persecuted the church. He felt the burden, even though he was forgiven, that he was responsible for the death of such a star, such a preacher, that young deacon, Stephen. He knew he did that. He was forgiven of it, but he said, I persecuted the church. I'm the least of all the saints. And he said, you know, it's an amazing thing that God would love me. If by any means. The thought's like, God loves me. I'm going to be resurrected. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be with the Lord one day forever. That I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. That is the fellowship of hope. That every believer has. And that's why we sorrow, but not as others who have no hope. Because we're part of this fellowship of hope. That's part of the DNA that God put into your life. You just know. Beyond a shadow of a doubt. Paul said in Timothy, 
I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Just know. That's part of the DNA. That confidence that the work is finished, that Jesus knows about me. He's never going to miss one. And then verses 12 through 17, I call this the fellowship of sanctification. Why? Because Paul wasn't done yet. He's right where we are. Look what he says. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that which also I was laid hold of by Jesus Christ. Paul loves Jesus so much, he wants to please him. Bottom line for Paul's life, he wanted to hear from Jesus. Well done, Paul. And Paul actually did finish his work. He said, how do you know that? Because of what he said in 2 Timothy. He said, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. Henceforth is laid up for me a crown which the Lord himself will give me. And not to me only, but all those that are living for Jesus appearing. Every time we have communion, part of that communion is what? Until he comes. There's the anticipation of the return of the Lord, of seeing the Lord face to face. When you think about heaven, what do you think about? A believer thinks of all the people that are there, of all the investment you have, of the loved ones that have gone before. More than anything, we want to see Jesus. Paul, with all the things that he knew about Jesus, he was still working on it. And he said, I want to please him. The one that died for me, the one that took my place, the one that's called me into ministry, that has strengthened me and provided for me all along the way. I want to make sure that I accomplish the purpose for which he saved me for. And he had the opportunity to finish. He goes on to say, brethren, I do not regard myself as laying hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting What is behind, I press forward to that which lies ahead. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. He's saying this is an attitude that every believer that's possessed the life of Christ, that has experienced resurrection power, that's an attitude you ought to have to be pleasing to God. But he's saying here, so we don't get discouraged because we look at Paul and say, well, yeah, Paul, I mean, man, he turned the world upside down for the gospel. I'm just me. No, he was still struggling with it. It's the pro- he was in the process of sanctification. God wasn't done yet, just like he's not done with me, and he's not done with you. But then right at the end, he gives a contrast. He says, how do you know what you're really serving? He said, if you're really serving the Lord, you want to please him. But the next verses say, listen, for many walk of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that the enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is their shame. Look at this. Who set their mind on earthly things. question is, when do you think about God? When do you think about Jesus? So when you come to church, when you go to a funeral? Paul said he was praying without ceasing. Now, we can quench the Spirit of God, but the Holy Spirit knows, and you know, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2, That only the Holy Spirit and a man know the heart of a man. But Paul puts these things in there so that believers that are kind of going along. There was a lot of believers. Sam talked about it last week when he preached. There were some people there, and they were believers. They were followers of Christ until they found out Christ was going to die. Hold hold, on, what Messiah are you? No, we didn't want a Messiah that died. No, no, no. We want one that kicks the Romans out and feeds us and brings us back to life whenever we need to come back to life. That's the one we signed up for. And they go away. They leave. Why? Because their mind was set on earthly things. That's what they cared about. They just cared about what was going on around, how they could get all they can, can all they get, sit in the lid. They cared about this life, this world. But last, he says, there's the fellowship of the supernatural. Those that are awaiting Jesus coming back. That's what they think about. And then it says this. Who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subjected all things to himself. That same power that spoke light into darkness that brought you to Christ one day is going to change your body. We all have a humble body now. 
Our humble bodies wear out. You may have played football in high school, and now you're feeling it. You used to be able to eat anything you wanted to. Now you've got to watch what you eat because it all goes to waste, right? Or it doesn't make you feel good. You have to watch out for certain things. But he's going to change your body to be like his body. What was his body like after he rose from the day? First of all, they didn't have to open the door. He passed out of the door. And yet you could touch him. He came through walls, and yet you could touch him, and he could eat. He said, you don't think it's me, Thomas, here? You said you won't believe? Go ahead. Put your hands in the nail prints. Put your hand up in my side. Thomas didn't have to do that. He just fell at his feet, and he said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus could just be here, and then he could be there. I don't know what that is. Time travel, mind travel, I don't know what that is. But you're going to have that body one day. That's going to be you. That body will be fit to live for all eternity. See, that's the body that God intended Adam to have in the beginning, but Adam sinned. And so death passed upon all men. The proof, everybody sins, everybody dies. But those that receive the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, you're not only going to live forever, but he's going to change your body. And the Bible says in 1 John chapter 3, listen, children, now are we the children of God. Now. Not when you die. When you receive Jesus Christ, you partake of the supernatural power of the resurrection. Now you have that DNA. And it does not yet appear what you shall be. You, I don't know what it's going to be like. We have some you know, descriptions of heaven. And you read the account in Ezekiel and you go, wow, I don't know what that's going to be like. Powerful heavenly beings like lightning moving around at light speed. I, I'm not sure what that is. And, and God sits in his throne and the green rainbow around the throne. And Jesus comes up and his, his face shines like the sun and his strength. And yet he still has the, the marks of the crucifixion in his body to remind us that everything we are is because of him. And the Bible says we see kind of in a glass darkly, but one day face to face, John goes on to say this. Everybody that has this hope in him purifies himself just as Jesus is pure. That's part of the DNA. You want to be like Christ. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the power of the resurrection that gives us life it changes all our desires. It, it helps us to, to hate our own sin. It helps us to desire to find out how you've gifted us so that we know how to serve you and where you want us to go and when you, when you want us to speak. Lord, what a thing that you've saved us, not just for heaven, but for ministry here to be a reflection of your grace to those around us. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would stir us up Desire to be like you. Use the word in our hearts today. Give us hope. And Lord, for those that don't have that hope, Lord, give them hope. Draw them to yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.